Well, good morning and happy Father's Day again to all the dads and granddads out there. Um, this didn't happen recently, like not super recently. I was telling someone about it this week. It was two, mm, two weeks ago. Braden and Avery, I just, I thought of it this morning in reference to Father's Day. Braden and Avery were playing house and they had some of their dolls set up and they were negotiating who takes turns with what roles in the house. And then um, Braden said, I'm going to start with dad. I want to be dad. And Avery gave a little bit of pushback and Braden kind of doubled down, starting to escalate a bit. So Avery was like, fine, we'll switch and you can be dad first. And so they started praying or playing. And I, I thought, um, oh, this is a nice teachable moment. So I just kind of said, because they were kind of in another room and I walked into the room and I'm like, oh, I see you really wanted to be dad, eh, Braden? And he's like, yeah. I said, oh, it's really sweet. I said, Braden, what's the most important part about being a dad? And he didn't look up from playing. He just kept playing and he said, farting. <laughs> that was it. He just kept playing. We are in a series called Insurrection, the Gospel of Mark. Speaking of Marks, we're, we're, doing, we're looking at an encounter between Jesus and a rich young ruler this week. And in thinking about that passage, and in reading through it, and praying through it, and researching it, I thought of Mark Zuckerberg, another Mark. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is the founder of, and CEO of Facebook. And as of 2016, his estimated net worth was over $55 billion dollars. And I thought of him in the context of today because he, to me, is, is a cultural equivalent of a rich young ruler. He's young, he's wealthy beyond anyone's imagination. And while he might not have a particular uh, geographic kingdom that he rules over, he is one of the most influential people in the world because he influences billions of people through the social media platform under his leadership. And... You know, for most people, maybe even for a lot of us here in our honest moments, we would envy Mark Zuckerberg because he's got three, three things that we just think, man, if you could have one of these, but yet alone all of them together, that would be a recipe for ultimate fulfillment and happiness, youth, wealth, and power. Two of those, th two of those three things would be awesome, but he's got all three of them. And... So far in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus come into contact with people who are usually missing two out of those three things. Occasionally, someone with social influence, but maybe not health. Maybe someone with health, but someone who is alienated or marginalized. This is one of the first times where Jesus, in Mark's gospel, where Jesus encounters someone who, from a worldly perspective, has everything. This guy has every privilege and advantage that you could dream of having, which raises an important question. What does Jesus offer to someone who has everything they need for happiness and fulfillment? What does Jesus offer someone, what, what does Jesus have to offer for someone who's not actually looking for a new life because they're very pleased with the life that they have? They're not looking for an exchange because they don't even see a need for one. In their mind's eye, they're, ex they're living heaven on earth right now. What does Jesus, how is Jesus going to interact with this person and why? I'm going to read the passage through, then we'll go back and teach through it. 
Mark 10, verses 17 to 27. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, we, we, we've left everything to follow you. And I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's look at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees. Who is this guy? Well, if you piece together the synoptic gospels, and they're called synoptic because they provide a synopsis of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's gospel is more encounters and sayings that aren't necessarily in, meant to give a chronological synopsis of Jesus' life. If between Mark, Matthew, and Luke's gospel, we find out that this is someone who's rich, he's young, and Luke's gospel says that he's a ruler. He has some kind of high social standing and influence. And like I said, in almost every culture then as now, it's good to be rich, it's good to be young, it's good to have power, and if you have all three, you've kind of captured lightning in a bottle, you have this favored life, and now, because you're rich and you're young and you're powerful, you get to do, um, well, the options of what's open to you are enormous. The horizon of possibility is incredibly wide. You get to fulfill not just freedom 55, so to speak, but freedom just my life. I have the resources through which to do whatever I want and to go after the fulfillment of whatever desire rises up within me. And so it's really important to pay attention to what's happening in this encounter. Because here's this rich young ruler who comes who we might be envious of and say, well, he has all the components to the life that's really life. Like if we had that access to all those things, that, then we'd really be living. And we have to watch how Jesus interacts with him and what Jesus counsels him to do. Because that's actually going to show us how to take hold of the life 
that the scripture said is really life. It's not an illusion. It's something substantial and real and glorious. It's weighty. It's meaningful. So we have this rich young ruler who's come before Jesus. And notice, this comes right on the heels of the disciples who were trying to not allow little children to come to Jesus. That's what we looked at last week. Parents bringing their kids. Disciples like, no, we're shutting this down. They don't have the political power. They don't have money. These these kids have nothing to offer Jesus. So don't waste the rabbi's time because we're, we're, we're about to establish the kingdom of God. We need movers and shakers. Notice, none of the disciples stopped the rich young ruler from coming to Jesus. Right this way, Mr. Zuckerberg. We would love for you to have a personal, we will arrange a personal one-on-one with our rabbi. Absolutely. And when he gets to Jesus, he asks a question that probably stuns everybody who's listening. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does he mean by this term, eternal life? It does mean life carrying on forever. The idea that uh, those who are in God's covenant faithfulness, when they die, they will continue to live with God forever. We might say going to heaven when we die. But a Jewish understanding was a little bit more robust and it was a little bit wider. It had this idea that Jewish people saw that they lived in a present age and an age to come. In the present age, there's the goodness of God in the world, but also it's corrupted by sin. So everything is kind of poisoned and that's why we have this twinning of the beauty of the world and the next moment, the corruption and and, and poison and toxicity of relationships and the human heart and injustices and suffering. But one day, God's going to act decisively. And then there's going to be the age to come. And this is where God's kingdom is going to come and be established fully. And it's going to deal with all of the corruption, injustice, suffering, and sin. And what's going to be left is simply God's good creation. And eternal life was was a way of trying to say life in that age. Life the way it's meant to be lived. Life the way God designed it. So when this rich young ruler is coming to Jesus, he's admitting something. He's saying, I have youth, I'm healthy, I'm strong, I have uh, power, I have tremendous social, maybe even political influence. I have more money than I need and really know what to do with. But I don't have um, an assurance in my soul, a peace in my soul. I, haven't, I know I haven't taken a hold of the life God wants for me, neither in this life or in this age to come. What do I need to do to access that life? Something's missing. And this is strange for people to hear because in the first century context, if you were wealthy, that was taken as an obvious sign that you were clearly blessed of God. Although the scripture doesn't teach that, part of kind of the Jewish subculture that had grown and maybe is still alive today in some parts of the Christian subculture, wealth is synonymous with God's blessing. It's a sign. And so when this rich man comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to take hold of the kind of life God really wants for me? And in a sense, he's saying, I don't feel blessed. I'm not living within the shalom of God. Everyone else is like, what? You're rich. You're young, you're powerful. Like God's blessing is objectively upon you. Why are you asking this question? 
It seems strange to them. See, he's admitting that he's missing something, that there's a gap. There's, he's haunted by this conviction that he hasn't taken hold of the kind of life that is really fulfilling and really meaningful and the kind of life that he can say, yeah, this is harmony with God and this is, this is the way life is supposed to be. And everyone else looks at his life and says, oh, he's got it. But from the inside, he's saying, I don't have it. And it's confusing to him. And it's probably scary to him. So he goes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do, good teacher? And Jesus in verse 18 says, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Don't give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he says, teacher, I have kept all of these since I was a boy. So notice what Jesus is doing. He's pushing him back to the Torah, pushing him back to the commandments of God. He says, you know the commandments. And he lists a few of them, not all of them, but he lists off some. And the rich young ruler says, and he maybe says it in an exasperated tone, I have kept all of these since I was just a little boy. Those, those kids that you were just, your disciples are just pushing away, those, those little children, I've kept all those commandments since I was their age. I've been a God-fearing person. The text gives us no reason to assume that this rich, young ruler is being insincere here. I think when the text notes in the next verse that Jesus looked at him and loved him, that's indicating to us that Jesus sees that he's sincere. As, as, as best as he know, knows how, he has tried, he has strived to live a God-honoring life for as long as he can remember. He's been sincere in his devotion to Yahweh. But Jesus also sees that he's haunted by the suspicion that something is missing. It's not enough. There's still this gap, this experiential gap between what he knows about God, what Linda was alluding to earlier. He's read about God. He, he, know, he knows about God. He's, he's, he's obeyed God. But there's an experiential gap between knowing God and experiencing the love of God and the grace of God in a way that pulls his entire life together to cohere into the kind of life that he has glimpses that he can take hold of, but he can't, he can never do it. He's lived a devoted, pious life his entire life. He's prospered in every way. So he's rich materially, but he's also rich morally. People would look at him and say, that is a fine young man. That, that, he is an archetype of what we'd want all of our Jewish sons to grow up to be. Young, rich, moral, God-fearing, and influential. He's what we would classify as a genuinely good person, a shining example to other people. Someone with strong moral, morals and ethics. And Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And I think that I think we have to read that in order to understand what Jesus says next is not punitive. It doesn't come up from a place of condemnation. It doesn't come up from a place of dismissing what the rich young ruler has said to this point. It comes from a place of deep love and recognition of who the young ruler is. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. 
is compassion for this lost soul. One thing you lack, Jesus says. <sighs> Sigh of relief. What's, what do I need to do? Jesus says one thing. Good, because I've done a lot of stuff up at this point in my life. I was hoping it wouldn't be a list of ten. Just one thing. Go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Now, if you are a disciple, if you're one of the other, let's say, apostles, the other 12 there, this is the, uh, this is the part of the, the encounter where you, you spit out the water, you, you choke a little bit, like, oh, whoa, hey, okay, just a second. And we kind of go over there and we separate Jesus from the rich young ruler and we're like, yeah, we want to lighten up a little bit on the sell all your money stuff. Um, we're, there's only, there's only 12 of us and we're just getting this movement started. Uh, totally okay with having the little kids around, but could we keep the rich people around too? That would be pretty sweet. Why don't we, um, could we soften the blow a bit? Maybe it doesn't have to give everything away. I mean, 20%, surely that would be good enough. I mean, maybe up to 40, but uh, like opportunities like this don't happen very often, Jesus. We got an elevator lift to fund, you know, like, uh. <laughs> Of course, that doesn't happen. Jesus just says that, but maybe on the interiority of these disciples, they're like, what is going on? They, this is a plot twist. They do not see this coming. And then there's probably this really palpable moment of tension and silence. And Jesus just lets that invitation hang. Maybe he's just staring with this rich young ruler. Maybe the rich young ruler's staring at Jesus. But then in verse 22, it says, At this the man's face fell. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. He understood what was being asked of him. He didn't perceive it as being hyperbolic. Oh, give all your wealth away, like just like a one-time donation kind of thing, like a little bit here. He understood what was being asked of him. He hears Jesus' call, leave behind your old, your old life and now come follow me. That's what you lack. And he says, no thanks. He, he, he leaves, he walks away. He turns his back on Jesus and he walks away. And he, he'd rather keep... He's amassed all this wealth and wealth and privilege and power and status. And he knows it's not enough, but he wants to add to it. And Jesus says, you're going to have to give it up. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I definitely want eternal life. I want to share in the eternal inheritance of Yahweh. And I'd like to begin taking a hold of that life right now. But if you're going to ask me, to give up all these good things that I've worked really, really hard for, I'm going to find a different rabbi. I'm going to ask this question of another rabbi. I'm going to get a second opinion. And he walks away. It's one of the saddest, sobering stories in all of the Gospels. Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Verse 24, the disciples were amazed. The text keeps saying that. They were amazed. Then they were even more amazed. They're, they're dumbfounded. They're in awe, and not like in an amazing way, in a what is going on here kind of way. Because again, they assumed wealth was a sign of Yahweh's favor. 
So when Jesus is talking about entering the kingdom and who has access to the kingdom, when Jesus says, oh, little kids, these little kids, don't forbid them from coming to me because of such as belongs the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus, they're not bringing anything to the table. They don't have anything to offer your kingdom. They're just, they just kind of like you and love you and, but they, they don't have, um, they don't have any social capital. Yes, children are at the back of the line of accessing God's kingdom. And, 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 and the disciples would have thought, yeah, and people like the rich young ruler are at the front of the line. But what Jesus seems to be doing is turning that all on its head. And now the rich young ruler is being told he actually doesn't even have a space in the queue, in the line, unless he's willing to let go of his old life. The disciples would have assumed that the rich were going to be a part of the kingdom. The question for them was, well, who else gets to be part of the kingdom? So when Jesus says, oh, not even the materially wealthy, that's not an automatic in. Not even the morally wealthy, that's not an automatic in either. This is jarring to them. So they ask, they're doing the the calculus in their head, they're like, well, who can be saved then? And Jesus says, all things are possible with God. What does this encounter show us? I think three things. I think number one, it does show us the danger of material wealth. Wealth, money is never in and of itself condemned in scripture. We often see people who are wealthy and have access to large sums of money doing good and godly things through them and God blessing them. And sometimes the scripture says very explicitly, God blessed this person by bringing wealth and uh, some of these uh, material blessings into their life. But the scripture is also very clear that wealth can act like a kind of trap. It It can begin to seduce you over time into thinking that you don't need God. And God becomes more and more peripheral. Maybe you won't completely abandon God. I still believe in God in some vague sense. But that sense of dependency on God, of God's the most important thing to me, it begins to compete with another master. And Jesus said, you can only ever serve one master. It doesn't matter who you are, you can only serve one master. And to the the disciples, he made it clear, he said, you know, like, you're not going to be able to serve God and money. Like, ultimately, you're going to have to pick, one of those is going to have to be the capital M master. And then throughout the New Testament, and certainly narratively, stories in the Old Testament teaches us that wherever wealth comes, where there isn't a tremendous amount of humility in making sure that wealth gets redistributed in a way that honors God, um, it, wealth ends up being a trap and often uh, corrupts a life that was heading in a really positive, God-glorifying, joyful direction in terms of inward and more selfish, and the life turns in on itself, and then corruption and heartache and suffering follow. N.T. Wright says, this is why the rich young ruler became sad, because he realized that in order to inherit the life of the new age, he had to abandon the values of the old age and trust himself completely to Jesus. And that is a difficult thing to do, especially if kind of maybe midlife where this rich young ruler is. He's at a place where he's like, I've built a pretty good life. I've built something to be proud of. I look at my rearview mirror, and there's lots to be proud of. And Jesus, by implication, saying, uh, yeah, you're going to have to leave that all behind and now come follow me. You're going to have to learn to live life out of a completely new paradigm. You can understand why that would be offensive. 
I'm not a, I'm not a wretched sinner. I, I, I'm not a, a, one of the wicked, godless people. I, maybe I've used my, maybe I've contributed huge sums of money to synagogue restoration. Maybe I have been generous. So where does Jesus kind of get off thinking that he says that all of that's for naught and I just got to kind of reset my life? That's offensive to the human heart. But it shows us that Christianity isn't primarily an additive element of one's life. Which a lot, that's how a lot of people think. Generally, I want to be a good person. I want to live a good life. Um, have some core values that are important to me. And then I'll add Jesus to the mix. So Jesus kind of becomes an accessory. Wear a little cross around our neck, symbolizing maybe a rich, deep faith. But for others, it's just kind of like an accessory that I think about once in a while. I don't build my life around it. It's something that I've added to my life. It's a top-up. It's a cherry on top. But I, I've, I've, I've built a Sunday, And, like, that's great. And that's what they understand Christian faith to be. Additive. And yet Jesus seems to be implying that it's something completely different. It's not something you add to your life. It's something around which you, your life has to be... Um, torn down and rebuilt slowly over time. But it's, it's, it's a much more explosive understanding of what faith in Jesus will demand of us. Jesus is confronting this young man's idol. He's built this good life and he's had this vision for a good life and he's achieved it. And Jesus says, your good life by human standards is a good life, but it won't give you access to the kingdom of God. So you're going to have to lay down that idol that good thing that's become an ultimate thing in your life, and now you're going to have to follow me. And the way you're, I'm asking you to lay it down is just to sell everything. That's the one thing you lack. Your wealth, even though it isn't for some people, for you, it is a blockage to entering the kingdom of God. And for you, it is interfering with your ability to take hold of the life. So you need to just clear house. And so when the question becomes, is Jesus' command here normative for every Christian? Or is every Christian, are, are we supposed to follow in these footsteps, sell everything we have and give it to the poor? My answer is kind of a yes and no. There, the yes part of it is we, to become a Christian means to bring what you have to Jesus and say, my life is yours. Not the spiritual part of my heart. That's for you, Jesus. And the rest of it, I'm just going to keep the same. Thanks. That's additional Christianity. That's top-up Christianity. Real Christianity is, here's what I have. Um, I need your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins. I want to commit my life to you. All of it. All of my social capital. All of my material capital. All of it. Here it is. What do you want to do with it? That is demanded of every Christian. We, we need to understand that at any point, if we have given our lives over to Jesus, our lives are not our own. And we need to, as scary as it might be, have to be willing to obey Jesus, if Jesus says, I want you to do this, go here, give this. But no, in the sense that it's not something that we can make normative for every Christian across time. And the Bible actually makes that really, really clear. Timothy Keller writes this, when Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler, he said, give all your money away. When Jesus speaks to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give 50% of my money away to the poor. Jesus says, it's great. Kingdom of God has come into your, uh, upon this life. If somebody takes that, 
Um, sorry, there's other people like Nicodemus in John 3 that come to Jesus as a Pharisee. Nicodemus would have had a, a, a fair amount of wealth and social standing. Jesus doesn't even bring up the issue of wealth with Nicodemus. And so if people can take this passage and say, um, you have to be poor, you have to do, uh, this is the pattern of all sincere, genuine, real Christians to sell everything and give it to the poor, you're not actually reading your Bible well. And you're not reading it specifically. And so this isn't, it's not right to interpret this specific passage calling this rich young ruler to sell everything and give it to the poor to say that's normative for every Christian. But I will say this, and, and this will be the hard edge of what I'm saying this morning. If you are not, if you are a Christian, you've yielded your life to Jesus, and you're not in a fairly consistent process of thinking about how I can continue to give sacrificially to the ministry of God's kingdom in and through the local church, in and through other ministries, then I, th- I think that is a problem and that is sinful. Again, different pastors are going to land in different places. I think the tithe, giving 10% of the income, is a good training wheels that God has instituted to help believers to keep our wealth from being a trap to us. And I'm not someone up here talking about tithing as if that doesn't touch and affect my life. I tithe 10% of my gross income. That means I am very limited in what I can do in terms of vacations and recreational opportunities, a lot of things. I'm not complaining about that. I'm just saying my commitment to following through on what I see as a baseline of this command to bring to Jesus and say, all that I have is yours. I'm just saying, I'm not saying that because it's easy for me or that it doesn't touch my life. It does touch my life. I'm not calling anybody to anything that I'm not doing. And I know that's a process. I didn't always tithe, but I started tithing at 2.5%, then 5% out of obedience to God. And I think if we're not doing that, or finances or our wealth is an area that's kind of a no-go zone with God, like I'm totally excited about following God in all these other areas, but I intentionally don't really ever bring this up in prayer or talk about it with my spouse or even develop a plan to give more sacrificially, I think that's a pretty clear clue that wealth and money is an idol to us. And and we need to look into that. We need to repent of that place of um, holding that back from God. Because wealth can be a trap that keeps us from a rich experience of God. And I think tithing and giving is one way that we, um, that God teaches us to make him our master, not money, to trust in him, not in the wealth that he's blessed us with. Number two, the story also teaches us the danger of moral wealth. He's not just a, a rich young ruler. Part of why he goes away is because he's like, really? Like, this doesn't all count? Like, I've been a super good person. Like, I haven't just talked the talk. I've walked the walk. I'm upright. I'm a pillar of this community, morally speaking. One commentator said, the scary thing about this story is that it shows that being rich materially is very dangerous. But being rich morally can be even more dangerous. Don't you see how the teachings of Christ go against everything you've ever heard? Almost every other religious system whether or not they believe in a heaven or nirvana or some afterlife, is basically you live a life, you accrue, you be a good person, and as long as your good outweighs your bad, then you get rewarded. And a lot of people place that on Christianity and think, yeah, Christianity is kind of like that. Christianity is not like that at all. Notice that the young man comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
he sees himself as the, as the agent of taking hold of the kingdom. I've done a lot of stuff, recognize I haven't gotten there, but what do I need to do to gain eternal life? And there's an insight there because there's a lot of people who, even just sometimes because of temperament, are very decent. They're very moral people, very good people, very religious people. But they also are people who feel like there's something missing. They haven't taken hold of the life that is truly life. There might be some people here like that this morning. You, you look at your life and you're like, yeah, all things being equal, I'm a pretty good person. You, you've been very moral. You've been very decent. And yet that has not secured for you this assurance that I have eternal life, life with God starting now and continuing forever. And that's the way it always is. Uh, sometimes moral and decent people, because of the sensitivity of their conscience, realize that something's missing. What else do I have to do? What have I left out? I'm trying to be as good as I can, but I'm coming up short. And this young man says, I, I, I've, I've obeyed all these commandments. I, I've done the checklist. Of my, here's my resume, Jesus. I think this is good enough, but yet it doesn't seem to be. And Jesus says, no, you're right, it's not good enough. Which is counter to our culture, because our culture even says, oh, it's not about what you believe, and all religions kind of basically teach the same thing. It's the kind of life that you live, as long as you're a good person. And of course, you don't want to encourage people to not live a good life and not be a good person. But in this passage, Jesus is making it very clear that Sometimes, in the same way that wealth can be a trap to keep you from God, so can your own perceived goodness and morality. Because when you hear things like, you're a sinner in need of Jesus' forgiveness, if you are a genuinely decent, good person, you might hear that and say, that's a little extreme. Sinner? Like, I know sinners. I have sinners in my family. But, like, I'm not a sinner. Like, I'm, I'm not perfect. No one's perfect and I need some tweaks. Jesus had to go to the cross to die for you. Well, maybe. Like, I know Jesus had to go to the cross to die for, like, really bad, like, super screwed up people. But I kind of have my stuff together. So Jesus probably could have just forgiven me. He probably didn't have to go to the cross. Your morality, your, your sense of goodness can actually act as a shield to keep God away from you. You know, I don't know how many times I've talked to people who are not Christian, who hold Christianity at bay, anything to do with church at bay, because they say, I don't need that. I'm a good person. Because what they think is, you come here on Sunday morning and someone rails at you to be a good person so that you just become morally better and then hopefully when you die, good side outweighs the bad and you get to go to heaven. And that's not what's happening at all. Jesus is saying your goodness on its own can never save you and deliver you into the kind of life God has for you. You need his grace. You need his forgiveness. You need the Holy Spirit supernaturally empowering you into an entirely new way of life. Jesus is saying, see, the fundamental problem is you think I've come to make bad people good or to make good people better. But I haven't come for either of those reasons. I've come to make dead people alive. And that's a very different, that's a different spiritual alchemy. That is an additive. That's inside out, upside down, rearranging. That's not Jesus is my interior decorator. He switched some of the paintings here. It's he's tearing the house down and rebuilding it into the kind of house that it was supposed to be. Number three, the last danger that we see here, we see the danger of material wealth and moral wealth, and we also see the danger of Jesus' gospel. 
And that's what I've alluded to this whole message. That Christianity is never a matter of addition. It's something explosive. It's something that when we hear and study the life of Jesus, you are, the tell that someone has never actually uh, dug deeper than the most superficial understanding of Jesus is when they say something to you like this. I kind of know Jesus. I've te- checked out his teachings. I really like him. talks a lot about love and about serving the poor. And so, like, I have no problem with Jesus. I just kind of don't. I'm not into the whole institutional religious thing. Right away, not in a condemnatory way, but I just know right away no one's actually done their homework on who Jesus is because that was not the fundamental message of Jesus. Be a good person. Love people. Uh, be friends with poor people. That's an outworking of the gospel. But the gospel is something that is radically subversive to our sense of spiritual meritocracy. I do good, I should get good. Jesus says the kingdom of God has come, it's accessible to everybody, but you have to enter it like a child. You don't get to just barge through the doors and say, here's my resume, I earned it, I merited it, Um, I have secured my place because of all these good things. You have to come humbly. This is a kingdom where you have to, at the start of the door, put all of your wealth before the king and say, this is all yours now. I need you, and I need an entirely new kind of life. People around me look at my life and say, your life's amazing. I wish we had your life. I'm the envy of people around me, but I don't have the kind of life that you've designed me to have. I I want your kind of life, God. To this rich young ruler, Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, then come follow me. To Nicodemus, he said, in the midst of some theological, moving towards a theological debate, Jesus says, listen, let's just start from square one. You need to be born again. You need need a full reset of your life. All the paradigms that you're bringing to the table about what it means to be a part of God's kingdom movement, they have to be um, understood anew. The nature of Christianity is explosive. And that means we should pause if we've never had an encounter with Jesus if we've never had an encounter with the real Jesus, and, and part of that evidence that you have had an encounter with the real Jesus is in some place in your soul, you've heard him say to you, in the center of your life, you are in bondage to something. It might be something very good. It might be your morality. It might be your wealth. It might be this idol, something very, very good. But you have not yielded that to me, and you need to let that go, and you need to follow me. I'm demanding that of you. You need to bow the knee to me as your king. I will not be an accessory to your life. Your life has to be mine. It's all or nothing. Now, if you trust me with your life, I will, I will do more in and through you than you can ask or imagine. But I will not participate as your pet as you move through life. I only come into your life as your king. And the two spheres of that kingship is lordship and saviorship. So if you've never had an encounter with Jesus on that level, if, if Jesus has always seemed like, ah, oh, just kind of a nice guy, I'd love to hang out with him, and we haven't had an encounter with the real Jesus. Has Jesus ever sent you away offended, upset, angry, feeling like he's unreasonable? Has he turned your life inside out and filled you with joy? Because those are the only two options. You really hear what Jesus is offering in you and you, your face falls? No thanks. Or you say, yes, this is what I've been searching for my whole life, my Lord and my God. Here's my life. Here's my career. Here's my family. Here are my dreams. Here are all my aspirations. I trust you with them. I trust that you know which ones need to be 
removed, which ones need to be added to and enlarged, which dead things in me, in me need to come alive, which things that are really leading the charge in my heart need to be put to death. I trust you more than I trust myself. And I understand that trusting Jesus to that extent is not easy. I don't want to make it sound like that's just something you do flippantly. Sometimes we fight God um, with our lives, but maybe in an area of our life for years because that trust is hard. That faith, we don't feel like we have enough faith for that. But I want to show you what can act as a catalyst to trust Jesus with your life and with the things that seem most precious to you here and now. And that is by seeing the truth of the gospel in this encounter. Most of your Bibles at the top, it'll say rich young ruler or the rich young man. And what you'll think is, that's the person Jesus is talking to. That's the association. You just just go there. Yeah, Jesus encounters the rich young man. But there's a subtext to this whole exchange. And that is, who is actually the rich young ruler? And if we know the scope and sequence of Scripture, if we know the narrative, if if we read the Gospels carefully, we're actually realizing Jesus is the rich young ruler. And Jesus is the rich young ruler who from eternity past decided he would give up everything and serve the poor. The poorest of the poor. The poor in spirit. You and me. People who didn't have any wealth. Didn't have access to the kingdom. So as Philippians 2 says, he didn't consider equality with God, his divine privilege, as something to be held on to. Well, I'm entitled to this. He didn't think that way. He emptied himself of that privilege. And he came and served in the form of a human being and went to death, even death on a cross. He entered into material and a limited kind of spiritual impoverishment so that we could enter into the riches of the kingdom. He became least so that we could become first. He became poor so that we could become rich. His face fell in sorrow at the cross so that ours could be lifted up and attuned to eternity and the eternal kind of life which is now on offer because of what he has done. And when we see that thread line in this story, it makes it easier to trust because Jesus is not asking us to do what he has not done himself as our king and as our leader, as our savior. So this morning, recognize that in some area of your life, he's calling to you. Don't be scared of his call. He has prepared new treasures of glory for you to receive and experience now. But in order for him to bring those new treasures into your life, you're going to have to let go of the old treasures. But when you do, you are going to take hold of the life that is truly life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sang this song that you are a good, good father. And sometimes it's hard for us to trust God because we didn't have parental figures, we didn't have fathers who revealed that goodness to us. And they taught us directly or indirectly that we have to keep, we have to watch our own back. We have to be the ones, no one's going to take care of us, we have to do it ourselves. So it's hard for us to trust in you. Would you continue to reveal your heart to us so that trusting you 
becomes reflexive. And as we trust you and as we see the blessings that come as we give over our lives to you and not just make you an accessory to our life, that this kingdom fullness, this eternal kind of life just begins to well up within us and just overwhelm our lives, God, in such a good and transformative and glorious way. As we worship you now, may we do so out of joy and out of anticipation of what you will do in and through our surrender to you. Amen.